Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. Looks like people are coming back from vacation. Place is filling up. That's good. So my name is Jonah. I'm one of the elders here at Bergen Park Church. We've been doing a series in three parts on the question of faith and doubt in Scripture. So we're going to be looking at part three uh, today. So a few years ago, a philosopher by the name of Peter Boghossian wrote a little book called A Manual for Creating Atheists. And this was written by an atheist to atheists for the purpose of helping convert people to atheism. And in his book, he defined faith as pretending to know things you don't know. Faith is pretending to know things you simply don't know. He goes on to say that faith is an unclassified cognitive illness disguised as a moral virtue. So essentially, for Boghossian, faith is a dangerous pathology that needs to be eradicated. Now, you go back a few years before Richard Dawkins, he's a well-known name as well, one of the new atheists. He had written a book called uh, The God Delusion, and that was uh, quite well-known. And he defined faith as the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and to evaluate evidence. That was his definition of faith. More recently, uh, Jerry Coyne has said that faith uh, is simply maybe a gift in religion, but in science, it's a poison. Faith is a poison. It's no way to find truth. Now, for these men and for many others like them, belief in God and belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is akin to intellectual suicide. Belief in God doesn't make sense. It can't make sense. It's completely irrational. Now, It should surprise me, but it doesn't, that a lot of Christians define faith in a very similar way. Christians will sometimes claim that faith is simply a gut feeling or an intuition, a blind leap, or a mere preference that may or may not be connected in any way to reality. Now, understand that none of this really constitutes faith. None of these definitions are the way the Bible defines faith. What this gives us, rather, is confident ignorance, okay? That's not faith. Confident ignorance. So what is faith? Well, I think the Bible tells us what faith is, and the Bible also gives us many examples of how faith plays out in the lives of ordinary people. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, is well known on this subject of faith. It defines faith for us. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, So that's the definition that Scripture gives us of of faith. But like I said, Scripture also gives us many examples of faith in the lives of ordinary people. You go back into the Old Testament to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, all the way up through the New Testament, even up to Paul, who was knocked down by the glory of God, who had an encounter with God, who went from a skeptic to a believer. And so the text I want to look at today, as we wrap up this brief series, is actually going to be in John chapter 20. And this is the famous account of doubting Thomas, okay? Thomas and his encounter with the risen Lord. So we're going to turn to uh, John chapter 20, 
and look at verses 24 through 31, and we will ponder this text together. So John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you have revealed this word that is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Lord, we ask that this word would convict our hearts today, convict us of sin, that it would transform us, that it would instruct us, that it would grow us in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus is not calling us to confident ignorance. He's calling us to true knowledge, to real faith. So just a little bit of context, let me just walk us through an exposition briefly of this passage so we can situate uh, this a little bit better. The story picks up following Jesus' appearance to the disciples as they gathered in a locked room. In the previous section, you'll read that these disciples had gathered together behind locked doors for fear of the Jewish authorities. Jesus visited them. Now, one disciple, Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, was dead at this point, so he would have been out of the picture. And we're also told in verse 24 that another disciple, Thomas, was not present either. We don't know where Thomas was. I suspect he was out picking up the lunch order at Taco Bell for the other disciples. At least that's my scholarly opinion based on careful textual analysis and historic <laughs> research, okay? Well, yeah, the point is we don't know where Thomas was. So it leaves us with 10 disciples. And if my math is correct, 12 minus these two equals 10. I know that's another thing that's been under attack these days, the objectivity of mathematics. But we will um, we'll assume that 12 minus 2 is 10, okay? So that leaves us with these, these disciples in the room. So uh, verse 25 tells us that Thomas didn't believe the testimony of the other disciples, he was the sole skeptic mentioned here, which makes us want to label him, which we have done, right? Doubting Thomas, that sort of thing. But it's highly likely that really all the disciples at this point were dealing with levels of, of confusion. If you go back a few verses, we read that the disciples still did not understand that Jesus had to die, that he had to be resurrected, that he had to ascend to the right hand 
of the Father. So understand that the resurrection of Jesus would have created a radical shift in thinking for the disciples, a radical, really paradigm shift, okay? Scripture tells us that the strangeness and the confusion in the minds of the disciples really continued all the way up to Pentecost. We read in Acts chapter 2 that it was at that moment, at that time when the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples, that they finally started to understand from Scripture what had taken place. They were empowered at that time to see clearly. Their eyes were opened, and they began to announce the gospel accurately from Scripture. But up until that point, they were still wrestling with these issues. They didn't understand who Jesus was completely. Now, notice that Thomas doesn't simply want to see Jesus. He wants to see the wounds. He wants physical evidence. He wants proof of a resurrected body. So... Thomas, honestly, we don't know. He may have suspected that what the other disciples had seen was some sort of ghost or apparition. We're not really told. But the fact is, Thomas wants to see this proof of a bodily resurrected Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting about the whole thing is that Jesus, in verses 26 through 28, gives Thomas exactly what he wants, right? Jesus, in his glorified state, somehow enters through this locked room through this locked door and appears among the disciples in the room. Now, you might suppose based on that that Jesus is simply still just a a disembodied spirit of some sort. But what helps us understand that he is truly resurrected is that he offers his wrists, his hands, and his side to Thomas. He says, reach out and touch. If you want want to know, here I am. This is a real resurrection. So he offers this to, to Thomas. And we're not told, actually, whether Thomas actually takes Jesus up on the offer to touch his, his hand. Now, the, the, the word in Greek for hand can mean wrist or forearm as well, because I realize that there's some debate over that. People will say, well, you know, Jesus' hands couldn't have been pierced because in a crucifixion, if the hand was pierced, he would have fallen from the cross. The hand could not support that nail. It's likely the, the nail actually pierced his wrist. But that's not an issue in the Greek. Uh, again, hand means wrist forearm, all of the above. So, again, we don't know whether Thomas reached out and actually touched Jesus, but we do know that Thomas's doubts were quelled. Whatever he saw, whatever he experienced was enough for him. And this is where he declares, my Lord and my God, this famous profession of faith, my Lord and my God, And really, that profession of faith in verse 28 is critical to this encounter with Jesus, because what it shows us is that belief is not simply a matter of how you feel about God at any particular moment. It's about who God truly is, Lord and God. The reality is our feelings toward God, our feelings about God will vary. They will ebb and flow. They will change. We looked at that last week. Belief is gradable based on the evidence that you have before you, based on various emotional factors. Beliefs shift and change a little bit. The the, the strength with which we hold a belief will vary at times. But what's most important is that this belief of Thomas is attached to a reality, the reality of who God is, the reality of what God has done, that Jesus Christ is Savior, that he died and rose again. 
Now, this entire interaction basically shows us that Jesus gets Thomas where he needs to be from doubt to belief. In verse 29, we see the tenderness of Jesus in his response to Thomas. We also see how Jesus rebukes Thomas. Jesus loves Thomas so much, he gives him exactly what he wanted. He gives him the proof he, he needed, but he also pronounced a blessing on those who were willing to believe without having seen. Stop doubting and believe. Blessed are those who believe without having seen. So the whole story communicates that God invites belief and he makes it possible for us to believe. He's inviting more than mere confident ignorance. He's inviting knowledge of who he is. So based on this brief overview of the text, I want to make three remarks on the nature of faith and doubt according to what John has has written here. So first, true faith is rooted in reality. The second point I want to make is that true faith helps us see clearly, and finally, true faith heals the hurt, the anxiety, the fear, and the pain. So first point, true faith is rooted in reality. Christian belief isn't about living at odds with reality, It's about knowing God. The idea that faith is this kind of irrational, intellectually blind, unreasoned leap of absurdity, that is not a biblical view. Okay, we need to put out of our minds this idea that faith is somehow antithetical to reason or disconnected from reality, okay? If we're not careful, we can fall into forms of mysticism where we replace the truth of God's word with mere feelings and experiences of our corrupt human hearts. And please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying here that emotion, the feelings, and the experiences are are not valuable, because they are. And oftentimes in Hebrew culture, the the heart and the mind were seen as as really kind of one thing. So this is important. Uh, I'm not dismissing that, but we do need to be careful with emotions and feelings and experiences that are not attached to a reality, okay, of what God has done. So knowledge of God is not about unexplainable, esoteric experiences or mysterious kind of hidden wisdom or that sort of thing. It's about a real God who is revealed in Scripture, who works in real ways through a real Holy Spirit toward real ends that unfold in time, space, history. Think of it this way. False faith or false confidence, confident ignorance would be akin to jumping out of an airplane at about 10,000 feet with no parachute and then hoping you survive, okay? That's confident ignorance. Biblical faith is more akin to jumping out of that same airplane at 10,000 feet with a parachute that you know has been packed by an expert and then trusting that that parachute will open and, and do what it's supposed to do. Now, notice that verses 30 and 31 form a purpose statement for John's gospel account. And it's no coincidence that John places these two verses following this account with with Thomas, the interaction between Thomas and Jesus. Okay, he's he's trying to tell us something about correct belief. The idea of this purpose statement is that we would know Jesus Christ. We would have beliefs that are rooted in truth about the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the basis of a reliable witness. That's the whole point. That's why John wrote this gospel. 
Now, the historic reality to which our faith is tied marks, I think, a very important difference between Christianity and many other belief systems in the world. Because most other religions originated in the private experiences, the spiritual experiences of one person who claims to have received some sort of revelation from God and then brings that back to the masses, okay? If you look at uh, Eastern pantheistic, non-dualistic religions, Buddhism, for example, or certain forms of Hinduism, and when I think of Buddhism, both the Theravada and Mahayana traditions, you'll see that a guru, someone goes and sits under a tree, meditates, or sits in front of a wall and meditates. On one account, one of the Buddhas actually cut off his eyelids and stared at a wall until he attained what he perceived to be enlightenment. So these gurus have a religious experience and then bring their instruction back to the people. Islam originated in a very similar way, with the ideas of Muhammad, who went off into a cave to pray and claims to have had an encounter with the angel Gabriel. According to some parts of Islamic tradition, the angel actually began to choke him and command him to recite. Muhammad wasn't even sure if he had encountered an angel or a demon, but he was told to recite these words and brought that personal, private religious experience back to the people. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, a similar story, an encounter with God, a private encounter with God, uh, golden tablets that mysteriously disappeared, no proof of anything, but again, that's the kind of stuff we're dealing with, these private experiences. That's not the story we, we get in Scripture. So even certain forms of liberal Christianity remove the history from Scripture. This idea that it doesn't really matter whether there even was a real Jesus, as long as you follow this personage, this, this thing that's recorded in, in Scripture, and follow the example of this person who may or may not have existed, who may or may not have raised from the dead. Every religious cult begins with a bold, persuasive personality who is able to convince vulnerable people that he or she knows things about God that nobody else knows. That's not what we see in Scripture. Christianity gives us something different. It gives us a God who reveals himself to countless people who interacts with his creation in time, space, history, who performs miracles, who guides a process of salvation over a period of thousands of years, who transmits a consistent story of salvation to over 40 authors in 66 books written in three languages on three continents. This is a God who became flesh, who dwelt among us, who died on a Roman cross as a perfect sacrifice for the redemption of people, who was raised to life, who appeared to many, and who has transformed the lives of millions. That is the God we worship. So what distinguishes Christianity from these religions is that God does not call us to confident ignorance, but to knowledge, that is, to belief that aims at truth, that is substantiated by some sort of justifying reasons, and that produces an outcome of true spiritual transformation. Christian faith is not about pretending to know things you don't know. Okay, it's about knowing God, the ultimate knower who knows us perfectly and invites us into a relationship with him. True faith is rooted in reality. Now, the second thing we note 
in this passage is that true faith helps us see clearly. The eyes of Thomas were open to the reality of who Jesus was. So the confident ignorance of false faith actually blinds us in two significant ways. First, it makes us see things that aren't really there, and secondly, it makes us fail to see things that are there. You see the distinction here. False faith makes us see things that aren't really there, and it makes us fail to see things that are there. So it's kind of like seeing too much or not seeing enough. So imagine you're lost in a desert, and I'm thinking one of these massive deserts like in North Africa, waves of sand that go in every direction, hundreds, maybe thousands of miles as far as the eye can see, sand dunes and nothing else. Now, what would be worse in this scenario? To be caught in a blinding sandstorm where you can't see a foot in front of your face and to wander aimlessly around the desert in circles? Or to constantly see mirages that lead you nowhere and to follow the mirage from place to place, uh, again, aimlessly in circles? You see the problem here. This is the nature of spiritual blindness, not seeing enough or seeing the wrong things. Now, the thing that made it so difficult for Thomas to accept the truth was that his wrong expectations had been fed by some presuppositions that just simply weren't, weren't right. Okay, he and the other disciples had been chasing a mirage. John chapter 20, verse 9 tells us, this is just a few verses before, earlier in the chapter, that the disciples still did not understand that Jesus had to suffer, that he had to die, that he had to be raised to life. They, they still didn't quite get it, okay? They were expecting a different kind of Messiah. The Jews were waiting for that, well, really that military leader, the one who would overthrow the foreign power, whether that was the Babylonians or Persians, Greeks, Romans, whoever it was, that Messiah would come and deliver the people and establish an earthly kingdom. He would reign on David's throne, that, that sort of stuff. And that's what the disciples were expecting. That's what Thomas had expected, and honestly, we do the same kind of thing when we bring our cultural presuppositions to Scripture and expect Jesus to fit a particular norm that we have established, something we've decided Jesus should be. We see things that aren't there. We see a mirage. The nationalist Jesus. The socialist Jesus. The hippie Jesus. The feminist Jesus. The social justice Jesus. The list goes on and on, right? We read our presuppositions into Scripture, into the account of who Jesus is, and we miss what Scripture actually says. The suffering servant Jesus who gave his life in our place to atone for sin, to redeem his people, and to judge those who rebel. That's the Jesus who is consistently and continually portrayed in New Testament literature, and the Jesus who is announced in Old Testament literature. So part of Thomas's doubt can be attributed to the fact that he was seeing things that weren't there. He didn't have the right perception. But notice that there's also a bit of a hardness of heart at play in the life of Thomas. He gives Jesus this ultimatum. I need to see proof. He was not willing to accept what Jesus had already done. Realize Jesus had shown him miracles. Jesus had taught him. He had spent three years with Jesus, and still he didn't believe you see, religious doubt is not always just about a lack of evidence. I've known Christians of tremendous faith 
who probably couldn't give you a lot of evidence for why they believe. Religious doubt isn't always tied to the amount of suffering a person has experienced. Some of the strongest believers I know are people who have gone through tremendous suffering. Religious doubt isn't even always tied to theological ignorance. I've known illiterate people who have taught me things about God. So doubt is sometimes simply a hardness of heart. It's about rebellion against truth. It's a natural result of our fallen human condition, the corruption of our mind, right? And until we admit our blindness, we're not going to see the truth. So the third thing we see here is that true faith heals our hurt, our anxiety, our fear. This was the experience of Thomas. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on in the minds of the disciples those first days following the resurrection, but we can imagine they were afraid for their lives. In fact, we don't have to imagine. The previous text tells us they were hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jewish authorities who had handed Jesus over to the Romans for crucifixion. They were afraid. They didn't know what fate they would face. These are men that were deeply disappointed with the outcome of things. Imagine all of this time they'd committed to following Jesus and now he's gone. They were grieving the loss of a friend, grieving the loss of their beloved teacher. They were confused about their present situation and no doubt confused about the future. But do you see the, the tenderness and yet the firmness of Jesus in his response to Thomas? Here we see compassionate revelation mingled in some ways with gentle rebuke as Jesus comes to Thomas. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus gave Thomas what he needed to pull him out of doubt. Jesus knew his heart and what, what he needed to see. But he also rebuked him. Stop doubting. Stop being an unbeliever. Believe. Jesus knows your heart, right? He knows what you need. And sometimes it's a gentle reminder of his love. Sometimes it's a two-by-four to the side of the head. But he gets our attention, right? He gets our attention in the ways that will wake us up. So one thing I hope you've learned through this brief series is that belief and doubt are a complex and nuanced reality that requires careful evaluation and honest assessment. And I understand that every one of us has wrestled at times with degrees of doubt. I understand that any number of struggles and challenges in life can lead to doubts and questions, and there's no shame in that. I understand that it's nearly impossible to truly measure the amount of faith a person has. But here's the thing, God doesn't want us to live in doubt. He does not want us to flounder in skepticism. Stop doubting and believe is a command, not a suggestion. Right? This is an imperative. And I've heard too many Christians defend doubt as some sort of intellectual virtue or some sort of natural part of our life that we don't have to worry about. The reality is sin is also a natural part of life, and God asks us to worry about that, right? to repent of that. So part of being made into the image of Christ through sanctification is a renewal of belief. It's overcoming the doubt. It's following Jesus Christ. And so again, I would urge you, Christians, brothers and sisters, if you are doubting, please don't feel shame in the doubt. 
But please do pursue the Lord in prayer, in his word, in sacrament, communion. Pursue him in fellowship. And then ask ourselves, too, what are these things preventing us from believing? What is it that's preventing us from experiencing the joy of salvation and the knowledge of God? See, the account of Thomas in John 20 instructs us that if you're genuinely asking God to show you something of himself, he will. He answers that prayer. And I want to encourage you that Jesus is Lord over your doubts. He is Lord and God over doubt. He is Lord and God over anxiety. He is Lord and God over fear. He is Lord and God over ignorance. He is Lord and God over anything that may be standing between you and faith. So understand that faith is not about believing things you know to be false. Faith is not about believing things even though you have no idea whether those things are true. True faith, the way scripture defines it, is trust in that which is not always visible to us. Belief in those unseen or maybe unrealized things, those future promises of God, on the basis of the testimony of a reliable witness. And that reliable witness is God himself. So faith is not about confidently embracing our ignorance. Faith is about confidently embracing our God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this word that has encouraged us this morning, this account of a man who is much like ourselves. Lord, we, we confess that we do struggle at times, and we need help overcoming our unbelief. We need sometimes that gentle rebuke to stop doubting and believe. We ask, Lord, that you would help us be believers, people that would trust you, the God of the universe, the creator. Lord, if you created us, then we can trust you for the results, the direction of your creation, the final outcome. Lord, help us be people of faith and to encourage and build each other up in the faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.